How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Right there is uh, probably the world's most favorite Christian song. Somebody has estimated it will be performed something like 10 million times a year. And you sort of realize why that's so, at least for us. Great words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Let's sing that again and just enter into those words as we approach the Lord. Let's sing again. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That was great to hear. Yeah, you know, kind of, that, that song is a favorite not only of followers of Jesus, but everybody seems to like that thing, you know? And you kind of got to wonder in terms of the words that are there. So it goes, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And that is true, even just the words, amazing grace. You know, kind of rolls off. It's kind of like a lullaby in that sense. That saved, yeah, everybody needs a little help once in a while. But these are the words that kind of, you wonder, how do people respond to a wretch like me? You know, if you, if you were to meet somebody on the street and ask them to give a one-word description of themselves, I, I don't think they would say, well, I'm a wretch, you know? But I guess everybody knows that deep down there's some stuff in ourselves that's just not great. So it's that phrase that saved a wretch like me. That's, that's what really drives the rest of the words, which we're going to sing a little bit later uh, in this gathering. Um, so what is that wretch thing about? Well, it starts with the guy who wrote the, the hymn. A man named John Newton. He was born in 1725 in England, and his mother died when he was six. And that's always a problem when your mom leaves your life, no matter what, what age you're in. We sort of know about that a little bit on Mother's Day. And he was sent off to a boarding school where he was badly treated and so at age 11, his dad called for him and he joined his dad as an apprentice aboard a ship. His dad was a seaman. And in his teens, he became disobedient and coarse and vulgar and he ultimately renounced whatever faith he had as a child. And eventually, he ended up serving on a slave ship. 
Now there was misery below decks, of course, on a slave ship. People who were stolen from their homeland in Africa, who were sold to Europeans and Americans, jammed into the hold of a ship and stacked like logs. That misery would continue as they arrived on foreign soil. As described in a recent interview in 1930 with the last survivor of a slave ship that came to the Americas. And he described what it was like to be aboard that ship in the hold and how in the collective misery of those people aboard for two months or longer in the sea voyage, they became bonded one with another. And then they arrive in this land where people speak an unintelligible language and have a sort of a kind of a hatred on their face and a disdain for them that they've never experienced before in their homeland. And then all of a sudden, they're sold off individually and sent to various places. and They have to start a life which is no life at all. That misery of slavery here in this country is still felt today, including here in the North, because maybe I've told you that the largest and most successful slave trade wasn't in the South. It was out of Bristol, Rhode Island in which slaves were picked up in Ghana. And they weren't brought to the United States because by that time slavery had been abolished, but the merchants brought them to Cuba where they dumped them and they worked in the sugar plantations and made rum and it was a rum that was brought to Bristol in slave ships, of course, and the harbor master just kind of looked away and the money that was resulted from the rum went to get more slaves. And go to Cuba and come back. It was called the Golden Triangle because it was the financially, it enriched this region. And so this region, uh, the legacy of slavery is woven into our current economic system and the privileges that some have and some don't have. Well, John Newton committed, uh, contributed to this misery in England. And with him aboard ship, above decks on topside, there was also misery because he described himself as disagreeable, despicable. He was described as one of the most profane men that the captain of that ship had ever met. And that's saying a lot for a sea captain who probably had pretty coarse language himself. He, apparently John Newton invented ways to be profane in his speech and people had never heard anything like that. But in the midst of a storm, he was converted to Christ. He repented of his personal sin, but his approval of slavery, including eventually becoming the captain of a slave ship, continued for five more years. So John Newton was indeed a wretch. And yes, he was saved by amazing grace, but what about his cargo? What about his merchandise below deck? What about those people? How did John Newton get to author the words of one of the best-loved hymns ever. How did this wretched life get redeemed and transformed? Well, the answer to that question can be seen also in the life of Rahab, the prostitute who lived in the Canaanite city of Jericho. She's another of the lesser-known characters of the Bible that we're looking at in the Old Testament, people that we are calling best supporting actors. I'm calling her Rahab the Redeemed. And you'll find her story in Joshua 2, 1 to 16. If you want to look it up in the church Bible, you'll find it on page 126. Because her story has some parallels to the story of John Newton. But what I want to say is it has a lot of parallels to your story and to my story as well. 
of what it means to be saved and redeemed by God, by amazing grace that God pours out on people like you and me and them. Now, redeemed is a fancy word that just means that something gets transformed into something better. We know what that's like when we take our stinking little soda bottles that we've drunk from and we take them to the store and they're a mess and there are flies all around and so on. And they take those things and they give you money. Now, it's money back for most of us. But that's sort of what it looks like. We turn over our stinky kind of sin and self-focused lives to God and he transforms them so that they are God and good-focused. He turns ugliness into gold in us. So this is a story of redemption. So uh, just to set the story of Joshua, by this time Moses has led the people of God out of their bondage as slaves in Egypt. And they've traveled around, but they got to be wandering because they didn't seem to want the promised land. They just wanted to be slaves out of slavery. And so after 40 years, they finally arrive at the edge of the promised land. Moses has died, and his successor, Joshua, is preparing to take his people into the promised land to free that place from the wickedness of the Canaanite way of life. And the intention was that God would bring a people who would replace that land with a life of mercy, justice, and truth under the rule of God. At least that was the intention, but it too went awry. But they're on the banks of the Jordan River. They're to the east of the Jordan, which runs north and south, and they're just north of the Dead Sea. And they're planning to head west into the Promised Land. And Joshua wants some reconnaissance about the land. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went, and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now let's pause just for a moment. Why did they go to the house of a prostitute? Well, such a question. Why not, I guess? But notice, it doesn't seem to be implying that, because it doesn't say they entered the prostitute. It says they entered the house of the prostitute. You see, apparently archaeological studies have indicated that Canaanite cities, all of them had a house of prostitution like this. It was part of the, the way the life was designed. And these houses, including Rahab's, was in the wall of the city. It was kind of like a gateway, an informal gateway between the outside and the inside. They had a door on the outside to welcome people and perhaps customers from the outside and a door on the inside to welcome the same from the inside. And so it was a place of encounter. It was a place of conversation and it was a place of other things as well. And the king of Jericho knew that this would be a place where information would be transferred. Because in these kind of liaisons, people would say things that they might not supposed to be saying. And so the king would find out from Rahab what was really going on in his little fiefdom there. But he also had some people who he had planted there to check up on Rahab to make sure she wasn't going to double cross him. So verse 2 says, the king of Jericho was told, apparently not by Rahab, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king is sort of aware that something is up. And um, so there was this sense that he was going to be 
checking up on this. And so verse three, he says to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they've come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And so she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. You see, the walls of the city had a rampart, a a top where people could walk around and look over the city. Later, that person would be a town crier, you know, 10 o'clock and all is well, that kind of a thing. And so Rahab's house was attached to that. So there was a second floor for storage and perhaps for the overflow customers. Joshua's spies were stored by Rahab there. And Rahab lied to the king. And she deceived his henchmen. What's going on here? Well, verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, Rahab went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you into this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Now that old statement there at the end, that's a confession of faith. This is the strongest statement of faith by a Gentile person in the Old Testament because it identifies not only the God of the people of Israel but states that he is the God of heaven and of earth, including that part of the earth named Jericho. I think she was making a stronger statement of faith than most of the Israelites would have made because they would have said, this is our God. And other people have other gods. You know, we sort of say that, well, this is my religion, but you have yours. No, she was stating, this is the God who is the only God, the God of heaven and the God of earth. And based on that faith then, she makes an appeal to these people who follow that God, verse 12. Now then, she says, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down from the roof by a rope through a window. For the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there three days until they return, and then go on your way. So she acts on her faith that she's come to believe that this God of the Israelites is the supreme God. 
and she defies her king. She joins with the people of God and lets Joshua's spies escape undetected. And so later, when the walls of Jericho fall outward in response to the sound of the trumpets and the shouts of praise from God's people, when God's hand breaks open this city and Jericho's eventually taken over, Rahab and her people are saved. So, Rahab saves her neck and that of her people by lying. And that's a life of faith? Apparently so, for in the New Testament, Hebrews 11:31, she's listed among the heroes of the faith. Among them, people like Noah, Abraham, Sarah, and Moses. She's in that list. It says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed along with those who were disobedient. And this story of deception, because of that, Rahab is considered righteous before God? Well, I guess so, for in James 2.25, we're told that in the same way as Abraham was considered righteous before God, in the verses just before this, by his faithful deeds, Rahab was considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Because of this, Rahab is considered our ancestor in the faith? I guess so, because in Matthew chapter 1, she's listed as the wife of Salmon, and out of them comes Boaz, who gets married to Ruth, that we heard about a few weeks before, with Jesus of Nazareth eventually descended from her, a Canaanite prostitute. So, religiously speaking now, I don't get this. Bad people like this don't go to heaven. They don't get in good with God, do they? It's rather good people who go to heaven. Good people are the people God loves, right? Rahab the redeemed? Again, religiously speaking, I don't think so. How did she get redeemed? How do you get redeemed? How do I get redeemed? Well, I think if you've been coming around here, you know the answer. We get redeemed or saved only by what we just sang about, the amazing grace of God. Made real in how we respond with faithful action. See, no one gets in good with God by just doing good things or being a good person. They'll tell us that. We might even be telling ourselves that, but it doesn't work. See, those good things that we do need to be based on the faith relationship with the forgiving and amazing grace of God whose love we miserable wretches really don't deserve. And also, conversely, no one gets in good with God by just saying, I believe in God and praying a prayer and feeling something and all that stuff and then continuing to live the miserable, wretched lives that we lived before we met him. So Rahab is redeemed and saved by the grace of God. She and all of us are told this in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Say these verses together with me. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, it was by God's grace that the spies came to her place 
initially in peace. And she responded in faith to the God that they came with, trusting that the God of heaven and earth would protect and deliver her. And it was, it, it was the same with you and with me. If you were born into a family of faith and you had people in your life who shared the gospel with you and such that you've never not known Jesus, that's a gift of God. That's amazing grace that you didn't grow up in a family like mine where I never heard that story. And for me, an adult convert at age 21, it was amazing grace that I'm on a theater stage getting ready for a performance and I meet a conversation with two people who were part of the crew, I didn't know they were believers. And they start engaging me with the gospel. That is a gift. I got to tell you, that's the last place you would expect to find believers in Jesus Christ who were out and witnessing about their faith. They would be usually somewhere else. It's a gift. Rahab, the prostitute, is redeemed by the amazing grace of God, and she's justified by her response to the faith that welled up in her, that was given her by God. She declared that the God of the spies was the God of heaven and earth, and she wasn't doing that just to butter them up. That's a true statement that she's making because she gave guidance and lodging to God's people. She risked her life turning from her allegiance to the king of Jericho who would certainly have swift punishment for someone like her. She turned her allegiance to the king of kings and lord of lords. And we too, if we are redeemed, we need to show it by the way we live unless, as the end of James says, our faith is without works and therefore is dead. Now Rahab's redemption here is all the more remarkable considering what we learn from the commentary that the Jewish rabbis got into ever since that story was written down. Because, I don't know if you're aware, that there's this whole thing called the Midrash, which was rabbis debating and talking about the Old Testament. And it's a body of teaching that was kind of carried through history, and it is at the basis of some of the teaching of the New Testament. In fact, the ministry and teaching of Jesus has this teaching of Jewish rabbis through history up until that time behind it. Now, in some cases, Jesus contradicted that teaching. You remember when he said, you've heard that it was said, but I say. He wasn't contradicting the word of God because this teaching is not the word of God. It's the teaching of the rabbis. It's kind of like what I'm giving you today. This is not the word of God, blah, blah, blah. That's the word of God, and maybe what I'm telling you is based on that. So anyway, Jesus would say, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? You know, if you smack me on the face, I get to smack you back. Now, that's God's blessing in the Old Testament. It's meant to say, if you do something to me, I get to pay you back, but not more. It's not like you smack me in the face and I cut off your ear, you know. But Jesus said, but I say to you, you've heard that it was said that, but I say to you what? Love your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you. So that principle of I get to smack somebody which is not what the word of God was intended to say. It's intended to limit violence. But he's saying, no, not so with you. But then there were other times when Jesus affirmed the teaching. He would say, you've heard that it was said, and, and he would teach out of that. And, and so that's what's going on here. There's this teaching about Rahab. 
that the rabbis engaged in. That's at the basis of these statements in the New Testament that lift her up as this paragon of virtue because apparently, according to this teaching, she certainly was. Because listen to this, the rabbis tell us that Rahab was involved in prostitution during the 40 years of the exodus from Egypt. That time when they left Egypt to right now when they are just about to enter the promised land, that 40 year period. She'd been engaged in prostitution. And listen, it was from the age of 10 to 50. She was 10 years old when she was entered into prostitution. Now, I don't know what your attitudes are about people who are sex workers, so-called. And you might think, well, what a sleaze that they would choose to live that way. Nobody chooses to live that way. No little girl or little boy dreams of being a sex worker when they grow up. They are often forced into this work around the world, some as early as this age of 10. And so they enter into it because that's all they can do because somebody wants something from them or somebody's earned something by selling them into this way of life. And that's the story of Rahab. All around the world and right here in our own city are people who are in bondage to the sex industry. And this is not of their own choosing. They're doing this because they think that's all they can do or because they're afraid for their lives. And I just want to say to us here this morning that whenever any of us participates in this industry, either electronically or personally, we are contributing to a worldwide industry of misery and of bondage. The wretchedness of a life such as Rahab lived for decades. And the Rahab, Rahab is also lifted up by the rabbis as a model of redemption, a Gentile who fully turns away from her former way of life for 40 years and embraces the God of the universe and his people. The rabbis say that she is alleged to have prayed, master of the universe, I've sinned with three things, with my eyes, with my thighs, and with my belly describing both the tools of her trade and the inevitable offspring of her trade, which no doubt would have been disposed in the Canaanite disposable society. And Rahab appeals to God's mercy on the basis of three things in her life. She asks for God's mercy on the basis of the rope, the window, and the flax, referencing the things that she did for the spies on the basis of her faith in the God of heaven and earth. That's what it looks like to be redeemed. And so no wonder the New Testament lifts her up. No wonder Jesus would say, perhaps referencing Rahab when he spoke to self-righteous people saying, prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven before you people. No wonder she's a model of faith and righteousness out of whose eventual marriage would come prophets and princes and eventually the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ himself. Rahab is the redeemed. And you can be redeemed along with her, you know. If you will receive God's amazing grace by faith, and if you will commit your life to living out of that. For the same kind of thing can be said of John Newton. He too is the redeemed. Yes, he was saved out of a storm. But eventually he came to see slavery differently because Jesus showed him that the slaves that were below decks, they're people. 
They're not property. You see, racist systems like slavery are based on the idea that these aren't people, so we can do with them what we want. But God showed him otherwise. And so he joined William Wilberforce in a campaign politically and morally to eliminate slavery from England and from the British Empire. And he wrote his own epitaph, which is pictured on his gravestone here. It reads this, John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves, and read that, a trafficker of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. John Newton is the redeemed. Oh, what about you? What about me? Well, that'll be a no way answer. I can't be redeemed. I can't clean up my life. I can't undo the deeds of my past any more than you can. But on the other hand, if the words of Titus, chapter 2, verse 11 and following is true, if in fact the grace of God has appeared offering salvation to all, then this is a different story. Redemption is possible. Jesus Christ has offered grace and redemption to you, every one of us here in this room, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've come from, no matter our history, no matter our lineage, no matter our supposed station in life, there's this offer of salvation, redemption to all of us. As you leave this place and get in your car and go somewhere or take a walk somewhere, every person you ever lock eyes with, this offer is for them as well. Salvation, redemption. The question is, will you turn to receive it, to receive grace by faith that God forgives in Jesus Christ who suffered and died on the cross so that our sin, our wretchedness might not be an impediment to our coming before the God of heaven and earth who is holy, holy, holy. And will you let that grace lead you to living and responding in a new way of life? Because Titus goes along to say that this grace teaches us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce unworldly, uh, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, there's a response that comes out of this grace. The grace isn't just that you're going to be okay with God. The grace is that your life will be changed. You will become the redeemed. You'll become like Rahab and John Newton. You'll become a trophy for God's redemption. He'll be able to say, look at, look at what the grace that I have for them has done for this life. What a transformation has happened. You can become the redeemed. You can make that transition anytime. Like today, now, here in this place. And if you're somebody who has at one point, like John Newton, had some kind of a transformative experience with God so that there was a shift in your heart towards him, but you're aware that there are parts of your life like his that have not come under the sway of God, you can become more of the redeemed or you can return to redemption if you've been wandering, kind of flopping around, doing a half-baked life, for God who has saved you and has redeemed you. You can come back today, this very moment. As Phil said earlier when he was leading into one of the songs, 
We never grow beyond the gospel. We only are invited to grow deeper into it. That's a great quote. So what will that involve? Very simply and quickly, six R's. First, you need to repent. You need to turn away from the way of life that you have been living without God at the center of your life. You can't have God over here on the side. It's not going to work. And without repentance, your life is going to end in wretchedness. Now, some of us here today are moms. Some of us here are grandmoms. I know you love your children. I am crazy about my kids and my grandkids. I get that. But without Jesus, they're in trouble. You can't just say, well, they're good people. Yes, they're good people. I get that. But without Jesus, without repentance, if they don't repent, Jesus says they will perish. So that's what you and I need to do is to repent because otherwise we're on the road of wretchedness. And we need to renounce, to put away anything that keeps us from life in Christ. It may be a goal that we have. It may be a career that we're pursuing. We push everything to the side, including God. It may be a relationship that we know isn't right, but we're pursuing it because we we can't live without it. And God says, you may need to renounce that. You may need to put that away and say, I'm done with it. It may be a habit that we know is something we can't control. We are powerless over it, and God says you need to repent and you need to renounce it. Put it out. Speak it out. And then we need to release these things, our whole selves, to the foot of the cross of Christ. We need to imagine that Jesus is on the cross, and we take these things and we lay them at the foot of the cross. We sang earlier, lay down your hurt, lay down your heart, come as you are. And then having turned in faith in these ways, then three more R's. We receive the grace and mercy of God. You know, there's grace and mercy right here in this room. I mean, this place is bursting with the grace of God. We've been singing about it all day. And it's available for you right here. There's something about being in a place like this together that just the grace is just flowing. But I got to tell you, when you get into your car, when you walk out this door, that grace is not going to leave you. It'll follow you. It'll pursue you all the days of your life. And if you will receive it, then you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's house will be surrounding you. Whatever you go through in this life, and then it'll be waiting for you in the life to come. Then we need to restore whatever we've damaged, the people we've hurt. That may include personal things. That may be things that we got involved in corporately, because sin isn't just personal, it's also bigger than that as well. We need to restore whatever's been damaged. And then finally learn to relate in new ways to the people whom we may have treated as our property, as our objects to use or to ogle. Just like John Newton did, we may need to relate to those people in a new way and relate to God in a different way. He who might have been on the side or somewhere is now front and center. This is part of this redemption picture. As we include, I want you to imagine that God the Holy Trinity is in a conversation, is in a conference about you and about me. They're doing that because the Bible tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God interceding for us. That includes everybody. You are on his lips right now. 
He's praying for you that you might respond to God, the Holy Trinity's offer of amazing grace. God the Father's hearing that prayer. He loves to answer the prayers of his son. And the Holy Spirit is there saying, I'm going to come. That's the gift that Jesus promised he would give. And he'll come and he'll call you and he'll call you and he'll beseech you and he'll beseech you. And the Father will be ready to welcome you when you come home to him with open arms. He will seat you with Christ in the heavenly place. So as the worship team comes back up now, we're going to close with a second singing of Amazing Grace. It has some extra words to it. And I invite you to enter into that Amazing Grace by making your response to God today and now. You might want to just turn aside from singing for a moment. Just address God with whatever might be going on in your heart now. and Just respond to the faith and grace he's pouring out upon you. And I just want to offer that if you want to make that response clear to yourself, this is what I'm doing, and perhaps clear to anybody that's seated beside you, I'm going to be down there as we're singing. And if you want to come and and, and just pray and have me pray briefly with you, I'd be glad to do that. And then after the service is over, you're welcome to go out that left-hand side door and there'll be some folks ready to pray with you about whatever has come up. So through the rest of our time together, through the rest of this Sabbath day and every day, may you sense God's amazing grace extended to you and that you, like Rahab the prostitute, like John Newton the slave trader, might become and be the redeemed.